obviously feel like we have to begin with a little boys to men. If we get a little boys to men end of the road uh, for Donald Rumsfeld, the oh, uh, yeah. butcher murderer of uh, millions of people. But uh, did you know that in addition to being a war criminal, he was the CEO of Gilead Sciences no, between really? 1997 and 2001? <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's so it's, uh, you know, when your career has led you to uh, overpricing uh, pharmaceuticals and just extracting uh, billions of dollars from people, what do you do next? Like, what's the next what's the next stage of your career? War criminal. Yeah. Invade there's only there's only one way you can get more evil than being a pharmaceutical <laughs> industry executive. And, of and that is, too. yeah. Although I guess that was before because, you know, obviously he did war crimes before he was at Gilead, too. So it's just, yeah, you know, perfect, perfect well, it's a synergy. It's a prerequisite for being life. a pharma CEO is you have to have some sort of like international uh, leverage on, on social murder in order yeah. to qualify. Variety for the is the spice of life. You know, you just really have to <laughs> sample the different chocolates in the box this one's whiskey Mr. this Rumsfeld. one's a little brandy a little contro little child murder and uh oh yeah ex- yeah just extraction cool. mr rumsfeld led a full life he is survived by his many crimes and the horrible scars that he left on the planet Fuck. all right all right the death kennel to support the show and get access to all of our weekly patron exclusive bonus episodes become a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash death panel pod obviously as usual if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or find us online at death panel underscore okay plugs out of the way Towards the back half of the episode, friend of the show, Charlie Mark Brighter, joins us for a farewell, a death panel farewell to Lauren Berlant. But first, today we're going to discuss something that our friends in epidemiology have been raising the alarm on for quite a while. It emerged this week that the long-promised and once-released very flimsy and limited OSHA guidelines released three weeks ago from the Biden administration were initially much more expansive. The final regulations that came out, these recommendations that are supposed to protect workers in the final draft was limited just to protecting healthcare workers. And so it's come out this week that it seems that in previous drafts, it was supposed to protect all workers. And in the revisions process, that was summarily removed. Yeah, this is like important. If you like remember back to like the, the 2020 campaign and like what it meant, what like building back better meant to some, <laughs> you know, extent or like the, the little like bullet points, like part of it was like acting on this thing, which the Trump administration had just like neglected. And if you go back and look, it's like people were demanding it as early as like the first week of March, 2020 uh, for some sort of workplace safety standard. And it's really obvious why people wanted it because you can go back and look at all of these uh, episodes of, you know, huge workplace outbreaks at, at, you know, 
Amazon um, warehouses at uh, meat, meat packing, packing plants, plants, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, take your pick. There's, there's like, it varies, I you know, obviously by industry, but there are a lot of industries where uh, these sorts of outbreaks happen. And obviously, even with the, you know, increase in like vaccination, that's still uh, happening. Right. So this is like one of the sort of promises. And if you look at the rule that the Biden administration's uh, OSHA um, initially put out, it's like pretty expansive. It applies to, you know, all different kinds of work settings. It's something like 780 pages long. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty explicit. I think this is really interesting. So this is uh, being published in the spring. Right. And it's pretty explicit about why that's still important, even though there is a rise in vaccination. And and I just want to quote from the rule, because when you're going to when you see what happened to the rule, um, this is going to be really important to note. OK, so yeah. this is from a page 67 uh, of the rule uh, and a section entitled immunity and vaccination have not eliminated the grave danger quote the development of safe and highly effective vaccines is an encouraging milestone in the nation's response to COVID-19 but OSHA does not believe that the grave danger to employees has been eliminated at the current time while FDA had issued emergency use authorization for three vaccines based on studies of tens of thousands of study participants clearly showing that they meet the required standards for safety effectiveness and manufacturing the, the virus is novel only having emerged in 2019 surprise surprise uh, additional data that have been generated from further follow-up participants um, gained either through infection or, or through vaccination is not yet fully understood. Essentially, they're saying that despite the fact that you have vaccination, it's still really, really important that we do something that's sort of economy wide um, <laughs> for uh, protecting workers. And like it's 780 pages. And I want to emphasize that like a good chunk of these pages is just OSHA citing like academic study after academic study after academic study yeah. about the value of each one of the things that they want to do and, 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 and want to require of these workplaces. So that was the plan in like roughly April or something like that. And then something happens. Well, yeah. And I want to dial it back really quick to be really explicit about why we're talking about this, because while I know that um, we're all doing the mission accomplished thing over here in the United States, um, despite although you're, you're now saying finally some like collective freak out, it seems like over the specifically like the Delta variant and you see all these headlines that are like, are we going to have to put masks back on? My God. Um, but even but even in the context of all of that, in this like mission accomplished sociological, as we've talked about before on the show, um, like the sociological construction of the end of the pandemic, uh, as opposed to, you know, the you know actual, like I don't know, biological eradication of the virus, the sociological end of the pandemic. Um, the original draft of this um, was only like has only just been released. I think it's the what was it? OSHA gave it to, to Bloomberg Law uh, as a at, at request, basically. Um, but just in terms of the timeline of how this actually works. So for example, like during, over the course of 2020, the Trump administration basically, uh, dragged their feet to the point of very effectively managing to get OSHA to do basically nothing over workplace safety as, because, you know, OSHA being one of the agencies that could meaningfully kind of step in and put guidelines in, in place in the name of like public health, basically to have these sort of interventions in the economy. There was a very, there was a very organized uh, resistance to that that was abetted directly by the by the Trump administration over the course of 2020. During that same period uh, in April, you have um, in April of 2020, you have Joe Biden like uh, on the campaign trail basically saying, uh, you know, that that OSHA should put in place 
these uh, these guidelines for COVID nineteen, that OSHA is an agency that could step in and you know meaningfully protect workers to the point that then you know one of Biden's first acts in office, uh, January twenty first, he uh, sends off this order saying that by March fifteenth, OSHA is to produce a workplace standard. So March 15th comes and goes. OSHA does not produce the rule. Um, they do not produce this rule, even a draft of it, the draft that we're talking about, until April 26th, um, at which point it goes to uh, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA, which is part of OMB, or the Office of Management and Budget, um, where it basically becomes the subject of a huge lobbying effort. There are something like 46 meetings on the books about this, um, including, you know, some of our some of our faves like Chamber of Commerce, et cetera, mm-hmm. yeah. um, get in there and have multiple meetings over this, so at which sketchy. point, um, <laughs> May 13th, we have the uh, the CDC uh, separate agency, obviously, but the CDC um, relaxes its masking recommendations um that you know we talked about this on the we talked about this when it happened uh and you know we made fun of it then and we weren't the only people too this was like the kind of thing where like the cdc relaxing its masking mandates was so abrupt and seemed so sort of uh you know quote-unquote scientifically uh nonsensical than even the likes of chuck todd questioned rochelle walensky <laughs> like my God. really aggressively about it like if chuck todd even was questioning the wisdom of whatever it doesn't chuck matter todd, my point being noted health communist you know during the period where where the industry was lobbying oira to like change what the osha recommendations were ultimately going to be um the cdc dropped its mask mandate and then only recently like early june did the osha recommendations come out the final the final recommendations only being for the healthcare sector basically right. and now, just this week, a couple of days ago, the original draft, which we're talking about, has been uh, has been put out. Right. Yeah. So that's the I just wanted to give kind of like the timeline, because when you really look at the events in chronological order, it's pretty fucking clear what happened here. It's right? wild how much it changed right now that this rev- this like early uh, draft without these revisions and without the sort of lobbying influence of the Chamber of Commerce types. It, it that to me that uh, that draft the 780 page draft that Phil was referencing that one is a m- much more complete policy that reflects what we know about you know viral spread and about the pandemic the one that was released after the revisions to me when it was released it almost read like they had written it in March of 2020 and never updated it because it's got this super narrow focus of healthcare and making sure that when you've got aerosol generating procedures that you've got adequate PPE protection. I mean, stop me if this sounds like deja vu, right? You know, it's these very narrow policies that are very targeted as if the only place you can contract COVID in the workplace is in a healthcare setting. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's also important to know like what's happening here in the in the interim, right? It's not like these industry groups are. It's not like capital is bringing some data to the Biden administration and seeing like, hey, we got this different data. We like went to our think tank and like, you know, we got these this different data about the effectiveness of masks and things like that. <laughs> no, it's it, it's going and basically saying, nice economic growth here be a shame if something happened to it 
Exactly. Uh, that's essentially yeah. what. And if you read these letters, it's you know whether or not these threats are, are credible or not. This is exactly the the sort of structural uh, thing that capital is like leveraging the letter. So this is a letter from the Chamber of Commerce on May eleventh, twenty twenty one. Oh, I can't this wait. Is a few days. Bye. This is a few days before uh, Walensky and the CDC announced that sort of switch. Um, but obviously, if you look at the number of meetings, like it sort of takes off to some extent after that too. Um, that was a nice sort of like little engine behind, behind the lobbying effort here. Um, but, uh, this is a, from a, um, uh, a meeting held by the chamber of commerce's coalition for workplace safety, which, uh, of course, as you can imagine, includes like the Hamburglar, uh, Grimace, uh, you know, yeah. Leatherface, um, and Pinhead. No, but it's, um, a, it's an industry group explicitly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's industry group. Yeah. So. All of the groups on the call, quote, are opposed to a uh, temporary standard. <laughs> we do not Surprise. believe it is the best way to emphasis here. Help employers protect their employees. Oh my CDC God. guidance is much more useful in conveying information than employers can actually use. Our members have been and are taking the COVID pandemic seriously and have taken various measures to protect employees. So th- then if you look at the the National Federation of Independent Business Letters, it ends by saying like pretty explicitly like America's small businesses have fought hard to stay in business and to protect both their health and the paychecks of their employees. The Department of Labor should refrain from imposing any unnecessary burdens on those already struggling small oh, businesses. God. This is signed by David Addington, who, by the way, used to be the chief counsel to Dick Cheney. Uh, oh, just a little, like background history there. So, um, but it's the all coming like, together the, this week, you know, just right. the stars so, like, are really aligning. The larger point here is that what uh, Oira is like doing in this process and what it always does, and it's why you see a lot of regulatory reversals happening in this way. It's, it's sort of like taking stock of where capital is uh, on these things and like what threats capital explicitly or implicitly is going to pose. If the regulations go into place, like, is it going to reduce its investment or does it seem like it's going to reduce its investment? Is it going to hire fewer people and so on? So like essentially it's trying to, to scan the sort of like threats in the political economy um, it has nothing to like, there's no regulatory science in this at all. Um, e- yeah. Even like the CDC's like regulatory science, there's, there's nothing uh, in it whatsoever. It's just like, if I had to say like, pull a set of PDFs that just are raw power, uh, like in PDF <laughs> form, <laughs> like that's just sort of, uh, this is like what I would uh, pull. And it's, I mean, there are so many standards that like this, the same thing happened. There was a rule uh, that was put out called uh, I think some years ago called non-discrimination on the basis of disability and air travel, uh, which was a rule about uh, requirements for aircraft to include, to provide an onboard wheelchair. Um, And the only people who petitioned OIRA uh, in that time uh, after it went uh, to them were the airline industry. And then surprise, surprise, the rule that eventually gets published doesn't have that standard for all the different aircrafts. Mm. Um, so yeah, this is, this is a, uh, common process and it looks like this, but it's, it's the implicit thing that sort of goes on when you have these firms having this level of private control over investment in the economy. It's always going to happen. 
Yeah, right. I mean, I think one of the things that's obviously enormously been made clear over and over throughout the way that Biden has the Biden administration has, you know, fulfilled their campaign promises. And I guess this is like also very primary in my mind because, you know, early on, they came out with this idea that they were going to have this huge percentage of the population vaccinated by the 4th of July and they were going to you know, America was going to be open and they even released like a commercial about America this week, just oh God. promoting America in general and celebrating our uh, in their mind sort of or in their frame, like the success over the pandemic, which is absolutely a, a fantasy. We're right? leading the <laughs> world out of the global pandemic. Right. That commercial it, is sort of like the crystal Pepsi version. <laughs> of it. It's like, remember that classic Pepsi that you like? Well, here's crystal Pepsi. Oh, my God. And, and I mean, it's a it's a, I mean, it's very appropriate that we're talking about Lauren Berlant's work at the end of the episode, because there's this sort of disconnect between what we're being told is happening and how we're being told that these are fulfillments of promises like that were very concrete during the run up to Biden taking office. Like we've got to get OSHA guidelines out. We've got to protect workers. He puts out this executive order. And then what do we get? But, you know, this thing that's sort of trapped in time that frames the pandemic as so narrowly focused that it appears that, you know, every every like actual recommendation that could have protected workers but would have required more reporting or more mm -hmm. investment from employers you know it's so obvious what's been taken out and why i think yeah i think that's a really big thing to highlight is it's not merely like some of the um some of what you'll see at least the top line stuff of, is like you know oh because uh, there was a lot of there there was a, a lot of pushback when these rules did come out a couple of weeks ago and people said like oh, this is just about healthcare workers like you said that the whole point of this of your whole the whole point of the initial order in the first place was like we're going to do OSHA workplace protections so that like everyone can feel more safe or whatever right and in the meantime of course obviously uh, you have all of these con uh, you know confounding factors you have like uh, they, they very successfully simultaneously there's the very successful mobilization of the idea that the pandemic is simply over though obviously you see that over and over again and uh as i'm mentioning this stuff with, like with the delta variant stuff that like and obviously everything outside of the united states that like we're very far from we're, we're like far from even dreaming of the possibility of uh of like covid not being around or whatever it's just like it's now endemic or something um but then you also have around the same time like while the lobbying effort is happening what else is happening except for uh, the entire debate about like, oh, well, you've overheated the economy with all your generous federal pandemic assistance. Um, you know, it's impossible to find employees, et cetera. Um, and all these like th this like simul simultaneous like multi-site attack uh, by businesses and fucking capital basically to make sure that nothing is going to stand in the way of like reopening and reopening for good or whatever, like, again, quote unquote, reopening as though we ever really truly closed. Um, but then what is, you know, not it's but then it's not merely the fact that uh, the final rule is like just basically about healthcare workers. Um, it is also the fact that as as B was alluding to specifically stripped out of this is like any requirement really to collect meaningful data at all about workplace transmission which already was not happening like already the government doesn't have like you know there there are studies and things that will will like reference but for example an agency like OSHA that you would you would think would be tasked with um doing something like collecting a lot of information on um workplace transmission it's like you know they 
the so many so many of the things that were changed in this document uh, were very clearly done to sort of prevent knowledge production, basically, like to right. prevent the ability to create a statistic that could show meaningfully. Oh, yeah, it looks like oh, wow, whoops, looks like uh, a lot of workplaces are um, unsafe, looks like. Uh, looks like it's still a problem. Oh, right. no. And it's the chamber actually argues, uh, I think, in their letter that you can't that it's impossible right. to uh, have that data, which yeah. is a really bizarre argument because it's already sort of being collected. But um, but they're like, yeah, no, it's not like it's not like, you know, any of that. You know, it's not like, you know, silica or something like that. Like, it's not like, you know, air quality generally like you can't collect data on this. It's like, yes, you can. Well, and it's the same uh, argument as was used against teachers unions that mm-hmm. we talked about months ago, which was that uh, like, oh, you can't say that these. Oh, well, Pete. There are, yeah, there are people who are who are sick. Uh, like there, yeah, there, are, yeah, there's uh, COVID nineteen cases in, in all all these uh, public schools across the nation. In fact, you do look at this MMWR, the nation's fucking lousy with them. However, you can't say that those were tra- like, did the transmission happen inside the school? How can you prove that, et cetera? The same thing. And the, like, the, you know, we talked about this also in terms of like it was the it was the playbook also of um, like restaurant industry lobbying groups, basically like, well, you can't prove that the that specifically, you know, uh, this, this statistically significant, uh, you know, bulk of cases or whatever, uh, the transmission happened specifically within the restaurant. Like maybe it happened in the public at large or whatever. You know what I mean? It's this whole what I'm trying to say is that my bottom line for this is we've talked about this before, but I think again and again, it's, it's these things where it's like, you know, um, no matter what exists here rhetorically, like no matter what the Biden administration has done rhetorically. And it's very clear that the decisions made over the management of the pandemic during the Biden administration have been guided, uh, first and foremost, not only by capital, but also overtly politically Mm -hmm. that they can say, you know, you can say like, keep your politics out of my science all you want or whatever. But then if the point, if ultimately the use of that by something like the Biden administration is to like go to the scientists who are constructing like the reality that is still the same fucking reality that is, that is contributing to mass harm of people under the pandemic under a pandemic that continues no matter how much we want to say that it's you know almost july 4th and we're fucking out of the woods or whatever like a good a good case in point is um just last week on the public episode we talked about emily oster at length and how basically and you know i think if you've listened to that i think we made end our previous episodes on her i think that you have a pretty good case laid out there for uh, why any assertion that she should be allowed anywhere near public health decisions should be absolutely like, you know, ridiculed and is absolutely baseless. And yet just this week, she was a co-author on a morbidity and mortality weekly report or MMWR on the Mm -hmm. CDC, which if you look at the fucking uh, disclosure of conflicts of interests uh, portion, it's like, Oh, there are no, the authors disclosed no conflict. Meanwhile, the MMWR was about schools we know that her uh, research is, has been funded in large part uh, over the course of the pandemic by the Waltons, like Peter Thiel, yeah. uh, the Kochs, all people who are explicitly not only for like no pandemic restrictions generally, but also 
who are very pro-charter school. And very anti-teacher union. And very anti-teacher, exactly. And this is not to say that the original draft, the you know, the 780 page or eight, whatever, the, that the original draft that was released this week was some sort of panacea or right. like fantastic, really good framework for protecting workers that was then gutted by the Chamber of Commerce. There are also some like very glaring um omissions and sort of loopholes and cutarounds that were in the original document, like particularly when it comes to, you know, commitments to uh, paying for sick leave, uh, which was completely pulled out in the final version as well. Um, But also in terms of the way that they used this term over and over uh, in the original draft and in the final one of grave danger, they, you know, OSHA has certain regulatory powers that are sort of like its right to inspect things or its right to have oversight. And when it comes to certain findings in that oversight role, those specific findings that OSHA can cite businesses for or employers for then trigger like additional powers that uh, OSHA has over oversight and, you know, being able to inspect and ensure compliance. So when OSHA uses terms about what kind of danger they've found in a workplace scenario, it's a very specific technical language that basically is about triggering what their additional powers are. Now, of course, like, OSHA is very underfunded and can barely even enforce those additional powers. And a lot of those additional powers are, you know, very paltry fines that mean nothing to these huge employers. I think it was like there was a $13,000 fine levied at an international poultry producer, which is just a drop in the bucket for (laughs) a lot of people sick and dead under their watch and by their own fault. So it was interesting to see this term grave danger used over and over again. And I, I I tried to look it up to be like, well, is this like a term of art? Does this mean something specific? This seems kind of like dramatic or something or superlative or it just doesn't totally like feel like it fits. And yet it's not only over and over again in the OSHA uh, document itself, but it's in the reporting on the OSHA document sort of citing the fact that OSHA has determined that there's grave danger. So it also sort of portrays it as if OSHA's made this broad sweeping statement or declaration to protect workers from grave danger when they absolutely haven't. Grave danger is not really a is not a term that they use. It's not a term that triggers additional powers for OSHA. This is not how they typically describe it. And I was looking at a a Congressional Research Service report on the OSHA reg draft trying to sort of tease out um, for lawmakers what it was saying and what you know issues are presented. And they point out that the term grave danger as it's used is a problem because there is um, you know no definition in any state or federal regulation as to what grave danger in that context even means or what grave danger means. Um, they they basically said that there is an unclear quote that it is unclear as to how Congress intended the term grave danger to be defined. And so as a result, even in their sort of declaration of like, here's our observation that that this danger can sort of exist in workplaces as a result of not just COVID, but employers lack of consideration for COVID protections. They're not even framing a like actionable evaluation yeah, of danger. It wasn't going to be good in the first place. Too. Right. Yeah. And, and yet, even what we've ended up with has been gutted to such a degree that's so preferential to the needs 
of business owners and businesses in the Chamber of Commerce types that it is remarkable that it's floated as a worker protection at all. Well, right. And this is I, I do think that this is why it's instructive to like look at the guts of how all of this works. Right. Because I think that there is, you know, the like for want of a better word, like the NPR understanding of like what the CDC <laughs> is, what OSHA is, is like these these autonomous state agencies that just like operate as faithful agents of what Congress wanted them to do and what Congress wanted them to do at some point in the past is like use regulatory science, like make decisions about like what a good, um, you know, policy is. But like this is just like the the problem, the broader problem with like the liberal imagination of like what the or like the liberal definition of what the state is, yeah. which is like this this autonomous like site where like it it, it, it can't be like penetrated or is like relatively hard uh, for capital to penetrate. And so like, but the point is that like all of these things, if you, if you begin looking at them even slightly and you look at the way that these terms like grave danger are like carved out and the way that OSHA sort of like corrects itself after this uh, like oil re- review in saying like, no, 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 this is actually like what, what we think the science like means now is like, it should be really apparent to you. That that's not that that's not what the state is. And like that, like, Oh, trusting like the science or like the, 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 the expertise, like that's not fully, not fully descriptive of like what is actually happening when these policies get made. Um, this is a, sphere of contention and we have to see it like that so like when someone like matt iglesias says like oh you know it's like so great to have a you know independent uh evaluator like uh, emily oster like come in and like critique like what the, the cdc <laughs> is doing because she like brings this like outside perspective it just it 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 fundamentally like buys into that like liberal understanding of what uh the state is and like how knowledge works within it whereas if you think about it this way what is happening in OSHA is this conflict between the kind of the, the parties that were bargaining over the construction of OSHA to begin with back in the 1970s. Right. And if you look at the way that the statute was like built and revised over time or even at the time where it was struck in the first place, all of the different structures, the scientific rules and routines, even the number of people on different like advisory panels or boards that like have to make decisions like within OSHA is all subject to this competition. And what emerges from it is this like you see the the like the field of contention uh, between like labor capital and uh, bureaucrats uh, within the state. And that's like fully the field on which like we're playing now. So there, there's like just like any sort of idea it's like well no we're just like going by the cdc guidance or like what the chamber is saying is like well you know this you can't just say that this is like uh this isn't something that osha should be doing this is act because the the pandemic isn't just something that happens at workplaces the danger is everywhere and so it's not really like osha's responsibility i mean all of these arguments are like built on this either this like logic of expertise or this logic of like legalism and neither of them really like stand up to any reason if we're really just thinking about what workers need to be or feel safe in an environment where the risks are uh, very difficult to notice or they're uncertain and we don't know how they might change in the future. Right. So maybe now is actually a good time to move on to our conversation with Charlie about Lauren Berlant's work. Uh, yeah, that's right. We wanted to take a moment to uh, mark the passing of an uh, incredible public figure, a true philosopher of the affective register of American power. I'm talking, of course, about Donald Rumsfeld. Yes. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, we'll yeah. be reading the memos uh, in full. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For um, the next rather than, 700 hours. Rather than reading Donald Rumsfeld's uh, Snowflakes, we're going to uh, read some of Lauren Berlant's instead. Um, yes, so indeed. yeah, stick around after the blip, blip break. I don't know how I'm going to edit this. Turn the record over. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, friend of the show, one of my best friends, co-facilitator of the Death Panel Reading Group, and the official Berlant bro himself, Charlie Mark Breider, is joining us today uh, for a farewell to author, cultural theorist, and austerity scholar, Lauren Berlant. Charlie, thank you for coming today. No, thank you so much, Beatrice. Um, I love you. Oh, I'm so <laughs> glad you could come today to talk about Berlant's work, not just because your handle on Twitter is Berlant bro and the interview you did with them was I think the reason why we even became friends was I was such a fan of of uh, the conversation you had with them. But I, I think, you know, they've passed away this week and it's a good opportunity to talk about their work because I think some people may know Lauren Berland's work, but I don't think that everyone will. I always think of their work as really a project about conceptualizing the austere imaginary. So, you know, because we're claiming you the Berlant expert today, for somebody that doesn't know their work at all, like how would you introduce their work to people? Um, honestly, I just got a little overwhelmed with your description because I just feel really sad that they are dead. But I really liked what you were saying about Berlant as a scholar of like the austerity of the imagination under American neoliberalism. I mean, the first thing that came to my mind when you said that is I guess that Lauren Berlant is sort of most famous for their 2011 book, Cruel Optimism. Um, so it was published two years after the financial crash. And I think a lot of their earlier work was sort of written during the quote unquote end of history era. Um, mm -hmm. And then financial crash happens and everyone's like, oh, maybe history still exists, question mark. <laughs> um, that would be so crazy if history still existed. Um, if I did it. Yeah, <laughs> if I buy history. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so then in 2011, Cruel Optimism comes out and sort of the main argument in that book is sort of why so so Lauren defines cruel optimism as sort of like anytime you are attached to something that is not actually serving you um so this can be on sort of like an interpersonal level I don't know like mm, I love licking mouse traps even though they just <laughs> like sh shock my tongue um but I just keep doing it because it's just giving me a little a little something um or this can be like sort of um, expanded on a more macro level to, I think, like you were saying, why are we attached to a version of what they call the good life, which is not sort of like serving us on a societal level. So going back to what you were saying, B, I feel like for them, the good life is sort of like this vision of happiness that was served up sort of post-World War II, but since 
the invent since the advent of neoliberalism has been sort of like hollowed out by privatization and um, austerity. And yet instead of sort of being like, oh, this thing that was supposed to be that maybe might have served us once is now just sort of like a cruel, vicious farce of itself. We're not sort of like deviating from it. Instead, we we remain more attached to it than ever. Um, and why are we doing that? And I think as you and I were talking about over text yesterday, B, uh, the thing that for, I guess, both of us, one of the things that makes Lauren's work really special is that they don't sort of like blame individuals for that attachment. They're not like, oh, so you love logics of neoliberal austerity? Well, you're a stupid little baby. I'm just going to bully you. <laughs> um, they're like in line, I guess, with a, sort of the approach that you guys take, which is ultimately a like a health justice approach. They're sort of like, no, a lot of times people have to stay attached to these logics in order to like literally not have mental breakdowns. Um, they are just doing, they're just trying to survive um, by attaching themselves to things that are ultimately hostile. And ideally we should sort of like zoom out and de-individualize and sort of look at the social structures that are like socially reproducing these logics that people are sort of forced to get attached to. And then also sort of celebrate the ingenuity and sort of like survival drive that sort of like allows people to remain attached to life, um, despite the odds. Um, and I guess, sorry, I've been like, oh, I have nothing to say. And then literally monologued. <laughs> um, I guess that's just what being a man is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I wonder, I, w I wonder if we could get into, um, some of that some more. Cause I think for example, one of the things that, um, B and I have been talking about with Berlant's passing is that, you know, for instance, going back and rereading Cruel Optimism, I was struck by how I was I was thinking, for example, you know, if the New York Times or like Vox or whoever tried to do some sort of eulogy for Lauren Berlant, which whether fortunately or unfortunately doesn't seem like it even happened like this did this death just past the radar of, of most of these kind of like regular liberal media institutions. Um, you know, they'll do like 30 obits for like Rumsfeld or whatever, but they won't touch Lauren Berlant. But yeah, it's I, like it so struck Lauren me, Berlant was already dead. It struck me that from a, <laughs> from a certain perspective, a very light or rather blinkered read of cool optimism could be like, Oh, well, you know, um, this, this teaches us that like utopian political projects are invalid or that we, we like cling to this ideal that we'll never actually achieve or whatever. And I think that you locate it quite well in saying like, well, the difference here is that they're not talking about personal responsibility. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like the rejection of that personal responsibility narrative is so key because I think other, like other scholars have obviously pointed out similar things about austerity and the way that, you know, neoliberalism and capitalism works. But I think what's really distinct about Lauren's work is they're very firm about sort of showing the way that this is not only like imposed on people, but that it's often, even though it's framed within the rhetoric of choice and sort of choosing your best life and making the right decisions to build, you know, what what they call the sort of conventional fantasy of the good life, that those decisions are actually really false choices and that no one really actually has much choice in how they interface with these things under our sort of current political economy. And it's it's interesting because I actually like I usually sort of shy away from explicitly referring to the idea of the fantasy of the good life that they use so often, especially in cruel optimism, because of this kind of 
misinterpretation of their work as being like potentially super nihilist that in pointing out, you know, that these fantasies of survival are kind of used as a way to keep people in the trap of being subjected to the values of, of neoliberalism. Um, you know, but as you and I were talking about, Charlie, that that pessimistic frame, that sort of, you know, a doomer nihilist reading of Berlant's work is actually, you know, not really what Berlant was talking about at all. Yeah, no, I would 100 percent agree with that. I mean, um, Lauren Berlant famously self-described as an optimist. Um, I can't remember when this came out, but they wrote this book with Lee Edelman, who's sort of just like famous white man, queer theory scholar, big in like the early 2000s. Um, the no future guy. Yeah, the no future yeah. guy. And their whole debate is Lee Edelman being like, I'm a pessimist, like, fuck the future. And Lauren Berlant <laughs> being like, well, you can ha- like being like you can have that position, but like you will like what what options does that give you um, right. actually? And I don't know. I think if you one way to re- misread cruel optimism is just to read it for the c- cruelty and not to read it for the optimism <laughs> part. Yeah, right. I don't know. I mean, my handle is literally like Berlant Bro, so I think. I it, it it was funny I, when Lauren died I was in a weird way like wow did my dad just die like my like <laughs> academic f- father um and then I was sort of like recap I put my Oedipus goggles on and was sort of like <laughs> looking back at my um the way I'd sort of felt about their work and you know I think for a while I I think I was frustrated because I was felt like oh cruel optimism is not actually an optimistic book, it sort of like romanticizes an attachment to an object that will never serve you as opposed to actually being like, we'll find a new object that does that does serve you better. Um, and I felt like that even if Lauren was trying to sort of break from the sort of like end of history vibe that people like Fukuyama were advocating for that it had sort of like replicated this logic by sort of keeping us attached to the, those very things that were not serving us and being like, well, even if you can't uh, be happy, you can just make your attachment to this thing that's not serving you more interesting. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I think sort of like looking back, I'm like, well, maybe Lauren's point was just that like, no matter what your object is, it will always let you down. And how do you respond to that fact? Well, that's interesting because I feel like I read so much of their work out of this sort of, um, and maybe this is just, you know, obviously the kind of thing that I would say coming out of the framework that we think of things on the show. But I mean, they ha- they have so much interesting stuff about how kind of, uh, of not only the sort of construction, literally fantastical construction of the national subject and who constitutes the citizen and how that is done on the basis of sort of individual imaginary. I actually want to, um, I want to read something really brief from around the period, actually, that cruel optimism came out. I think this is 2012. So a bit after, um, I, I, this is from, uh, their blog and I believe it's, 
I believe this is a post that was called the trumping of politics, which is funny because it's from 2012 <laughs> and they're identifying. Uh, I mean, they, they're speaking much more cogently of, uh, you know, th- things that I think then, you know, four or five years later uh, became the subject of such heightened national attention and then just absolutely was not even nearly as translated as well as it was here. But um, let me just quote this from from Lauren Berlant's blog. I have argued elsewhere that under the pressure to justify austerity amidst vast global wealth, democracy has begun to be redefined as the equal exposure of all persons to the virulent excisions of the market. Democracy is no longer imaginatively a counterforce to market forces. A bad employee, throw her out. A clumsy employee who is otherwise a good employee, throw him out. Like a felon, they have lost the right to democracy. This is a world where right to work means no right to unionize. This is a world where seeking protections from employer exploitation is recast as being privileged and self-interested. The worker is cast as greedy while the capitalist is cast as generous. In this view, equal vulnerability to swift, efficient structural judgment is seen to constitute fairness, no matter that austerity is the punishment of the many for the appetites of the few. Yeah. I mean, I, I there's this point that they they make about the sort of good life fantasy where they say that, you know, one of the sort of clear tenets of neoliberalism that in Berlant's opinion was sort of under theorized was the idea that under neoliberalism, conceptually, it's impossible to unknow your own precarity. And that like knowing your precarity and being so unflinchingly and cruelly aware of just how far you are away from the good life becomes in and of itself sort of the like the trap which motivates people to continue to hold on to that good life fantasy is something that they absolutely can achieve through like capitalist assimilation or being a good worker or sucking up to the boss or being like, you know, a girl boss or whatever. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? There's kind of this idea of like, you know, uh, an aspirational good life fantasy is a trap for people. And it really holds people in this position where they think if only like through just enough self-improvement or like just enough manifesting, or if I just like get the right mindset or I just dress right or, or act right, or whatever, I'll be able to achieve that fantasy that I think to them sort of represents this like overly romanticized, but as you were saying, Charlie, kind of completely devoid of like actual material meaning um, idea of like a return to New Deal policies and the sort of fantasy of like New Deal era uh, redistributive democracy as this kind of like false promise. And I totally understand how that could like easily be misread as sort of a doomer, like nothing's going to change, nothing matters. But like, you know, I think what Berlant is sort of more saying is, is like more applicable in a way um, than like not applicable to nihilism, but more applicable to stuff like the way we talk about, um, for example, you know, how things like everyone has a right to access care becomes, um, you know, our goal is to increase access to affordable care where sort of this this right and this need that is recognized for survival becomes abstracted in the sort of broader fantasy of what it could be and how it will be through policy. And then we become sort of wedded to the idea of expanding access to affordable care without ever questioning what that actually means and whether that will you know, materially actually benefit us. And when you critique, say, Joe Biden for 
proposing hollow healthcare reforms, one of the sort of cruel, optimistic frames that I think Lauren is actually identifying is the tendency of people to call you, you know, crazy or utopian for wanting and demanding something more than just, you know, a sort of realistic prescriptive policy response to slightly tone down the cruelty. Right. Right. Exactly. I think, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think that, um, uh, a misreading of Lauren's work would be to say like, Oh, Beatrice, uh, you know, I say, I, and then of course it would be said in the kind of voice. It's like, so, sm- so smug. Um, <laughs> oh, 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 Beatrice, like, you said in fact, <laughs> in fact, you are the one with a relation, the cruel optimist all along for your really, for your attachment to wanting people to not be like, murdered by racial capitalism you you're attached to a fantasy medicare for all why don't you just get ground back into reality like the rest of us instead of living in in a dream and i don't know i one thing that i couldn't help but think of um when you talked about sort of like cruelly optimistic attachment to new deal era society is a sort of like return of trad aesthetics which Um, to me, you know, I've just been thinking about recently, like, I get it, like normativity, you will make more money. There's a reason people assimilate so aggressively. And it is because they want, they're like, oh, I'm going to cash out. Um, and it's just funny, I guess, to see literally the object of fantasy in Lauren's work like the sort of like New Deal America sort of like returning as the sort of like weird American apparel aesthetic when the sort of like social infrastructure that actually enabled the New Deal society to exist obviously doesn't exist anymore. And that that be these sort of like trad people's politics doesn't actually line up with even like that sort of like New Deal political framework um, it's actually like in in a way, their attachment is the cruelly optimistic one because it's both right. and it's attachment to New Deal as aesthetic, neoliberal austerity as politics. But I don't know. And a- another thing I also thought of, um, Artie, when you were reading that quote is that Berlant also came up famously with this concept of slow death. Um, so mm. this is in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, so even before... The financial crash. And it's from this essay, Slow Death, Sovereignty, Obesity, Lateral Agency. And I'm just going to read quickly the definition. The phrase slow death refers to the physical wearing out of a population and the deterioration of people in that population that is very nearly a defining condition of their experience and historical existence. The general emphasis of the phrase is on the phenomenon of mass physical attenuation under global national regimes. Um, and I can't see the rest because it says preview on it, but, um, <laughs> but, um, it just sort of seemed to me like another instance of Berlant sort of like theorizing austerity in which we are all forced to, to slowly die, um, instead of being able to be, mur- instead of being murdered more explicitly or given the right to live well. Yeah. And I think the way that they talk about slow death also like tends towards being sort of misinterpreted as like a critique of um, people trying to politicize their identities. Because one thing that that Berlant talks about is sort of how 
in the in the like sort of crisis of slow death, which is very banal, right? It's the kind of things that we talk about all the time on the show, like um, you know, healthcare inequity, just any of the any of the things like uh, housing access issues or environmental issues or educational issues, all of the sort of social determinants of health that make the lives of poor people shorter is really, you know, sort of where like Berlin's theorizing. A lot of people, I think, have read that as this kind of like, okay, well, when when these things happen, when we recognize that slow death is happening, there is this sort of liberal tendency to make it a crisis. Like, uh, and I think the example that Berlant uses most often is the quote unquote obesity crisis and Michelle Obama's um, campaign to try and end obesity through getting people to exercise and making sure people are informed and eating healthy. And it really pushes things into the individual and, you know, what Berlant's critique basically says is that sort of in this like forced politicization of these issues of slow death, we kind of create these mirages of crisis, right, which then in our minds should encourage some sort of policy response or should encourage some sort of response to fix things. But what Berlant's work is actually really saying more than anything else is that this is more of like a um, an assimilation where you have like the neoliberal regime sort of taking up responsibility for its own engines of slow death and pointing the blame elsewhere and also pointing to a solution that um, will not do anything to destabilize capitalism and forecloses on the kind of um, future personhood of the object of that crisis, right? And that it in and of itself is this kind of destabilizing, demotivating force of subjection and oppression rather than being the sort of liberal ideology of empowerment through drawing awareness to slow death and the forces of like capitalism taking life away from the population. And I think it's like a it's an important idea. And I think part of what I love about about Berlant's work over the years is also that they've like really, I think, changed their mind on things and and gotten more precise about their language, like as they got older, because a lot of the stuff that they wrote, like in the period, like post the Great Recession, like Berlant's talking about like the ways that we use the attention to issues and sort of the idea of like, oh, look at this crisis. We need to study it. We need to look at it. We need to come up with solutions for it as a way of actually avoiding intervening in these processes of slow death. Well, actually, I uh, glanced back at the screen um, and noticed that just below the giant preview sign is a point that's extremely relevant to what you were saying, Beatrice, about the relationship between um, slow death and austerity and um, health communism. And they say, that the phrase slow death, and here I'm quoting, takes as its point of departure David Harvey's polemical observation in Spaces of Hope that under capitalism, sickness is defined as the inability to work. The, this powerful observation about the rationalization of health is an important part of the story, but is not the whole story either. Sort of a very uh, death panel point. Um, and I think they are. So Lauren Berlant studied was sort of like the famous mentee of Eve Sedgwick, who's sort of like the founder of queer theories. Like Grace Lavery has written about how Eve Sedgwick is kind of like was famously an sort of like an egg and um, that this egginess sort of like translates into their work, some of which is sort of like ex explicitly transphobic, but Sedgwick's sort of like most famous essay is sort of about what they call the difference between sort of like 
paranoid reading and reparative reading, which again, I have very obviously ambivalent feelings about all of this, but the sort of like Sparknotes version is that a paranoid reading is one in which the, the reader sort of feels that they know the answer already. And so they're reading something to see what, to gain further proof of what they already know. So it's a kind of like conspiracy theory way of looking at something. Whereas a sort of like reparative reading is one in which you kind of like leave open the space for like surprise and sort of enjoyment of what you're reading and sort of your what you're doing is leaving space to actually learn what you don't know already. And I feel like, you know, so so that was sort of like what mode of reading that Lauren was being trained in. And I feel like you can see that sort of, you know, it's like I have I have really complicated feelings about the sort of like reparative versus p- paranoid binary, the true gender binary, uh, paranoid <laughs> versus reparative reading, because I feel like within queer theory, but also theory more generally, it's become a way to kind of shame people for being like, oh, things are bad. Like this is bad stuff is happening. They're like, oh, you're so paranoid. Like, why can't you just like smell the flowers and like be happy and like have a quirky niche reading about how something in capitalism has produced something cute actually. And you're like, uh, okay, well, I kind of just feel bad right now. Um, I don't feel like it's bad that I feel bad, but I do, I do, uh, really appreciate Lauren's commitment to openness and to being surprised. And I feel like you really see it play out in the way that they wrote, because the other thing about Lauren is that they were like an amazing stylist, like other Mm -hmm. than, I'd say other than like maybe Fred Moten, Lauren (laughs) Berlant is maybe like the best academic stylist that we had. And the last book that they published was this book called The Hundreds, um, which was co-written. And it was sort of these sort of brief prose excerpts. And one thing that was really exciting was that they seemed to kind of be moving away from doing strictly academic writing to doing sort of just these prose experiments. And just before I hopped onto this, my friend Maxi sent me this little excerpt, which I thought I would just read briefly just to give people a sense of what Lauren was like as a prose stylist. And for me, the thing that makes Lauren's prose so special is that it it's sort of about cultivating an openness to how deeply weird things can be. And that actually life is so, so weird already and so beautiful as long as we are actually able to remain open to that. And it reminds me of what you were saying, be about the imagination, about how an austerity of imagination means that we sort of are forced to close ourselves off off to this. And this is actually something that, sorry, I'm really going on one, but I'm thinking, I've been thinking about in relation to my friend River Ramirez's work, um, which I feel like is very actually much about sort of like the way we think about love and healing and these, the way these things are aestheticized or sort of aestheticized as being sort of like comforting and uh, girl bossy, but actually our whole life is under racial capitalism is designed against love and healing so that when we actually experiencing these experience these things they are kind of like deeply weird and a little alienating because we're so used to unused to experiencing sort of like tr- true love and healing and understanding because instead we're disincentivized <laughs> or forced to run away from our desires and i really think that lauren brings all of that together in in their prose so this is an excerpt from 
their blog, Supervalent Thought, which I would just love to be on the record saying that if we, if the aughts are going to, that period of the aughts sort of pre-Instagram is sort of culturally defined by the sort of like mini rise of blogs, I would place, I'm like, if you were an academic in that era, Supervalent Thought like was your Cobra Snake, like that was your (laughs) like rookie mag, like, um, yeah, revisiting it now, I was just like, it's incredible. Like no one yeah. was writing, no one was writing like this and no one writes with like this now. Um, there'll be and never be another Lauren, um, which is why it's really sad that they're dead. Um, okay. So here is the excerpt and thank you, Maxie, for sending this to me. Um, I experimented with taking a day off. It was likely to be a failure because it had to be an experiment as I have no habits of leaving the desk, only habits of clawing a path back to it, which is odd because I'd never leave it except when I'm forced to by my job or my career, which are also what forced me back. Or there's a movie to watch. But even then, if it's at home, the quote desk comes with me like a friend resting on the arm of the couch so I can turn to it anxiously when I hit a moment of not understanding. Even at the gym, I work on the elliptical. I am on a plane now. Leonardo DiCaprio's coffee is shaking slow-mo and the people are acting as though they're dissociating, but his face is too wide, square, fat, or flat for me to cathect, which is a mimetic response. (laughs) I Um, love that. (laughs) And it's from a blog post called, I don't know if I could do nothing and be that cool with everything. (laughs) Um, Speaking of neoliberalism, this is Lauren Berlant being like, wow, we are so incentivized to literally work all the time that actually rest is deeply weird and alienating. And also specifically as an academic, because your work is your brain, it's actually so hard to stop working because your brain is already so used to like sublimating all of your feelings and desires into thoughts because that's your survival mechanism, but also it's your job is literally your defense mechanism. So What does it mean to turn that off? Like, what does life look like? And also, I just think they're a great writer. Um, I don't know. It's funny. I actually also pulled a quote from this exact post because I found it (laughs) so beautiful. No, absolutely not. Just, uh, okay, just a few sentences later. Can I just read this really quickly? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I just want to be clear, you know, um, to the degree that uh, we're talking about this, the idea was to give like a eulogy for... Lauren Berlant and their work. And I think probably there's nothing more appropriate than us just reading a couple of quotes uh, to just to close this out. Uh, Two new big classes and a paper deadline and a vast job search and the students spilling out all late into December because we ask them to be intellectuals, but give them no time to do it. Inculcating in the upcoming professional class a fatigue autoerotics, along with a shamed and confused awareness that these labor conditions allow only tumbling down a hill and then revising it later to look like a plan when it was only doing what you could do at any time. My epitaph in an act of blind hope. So anyway, that's really good. (laughs) That's really, really good. Yeah. So the world is a slightly darker place this week, I think. Yeah. For having lost Lauren. I I agree. I wanted, I wanted to end with actually reading the end of your interview that you did with them in TNI. uh, Was it in 2019? I think in March of 2019, where you guys have been going back and forth about the aside, whether, you know, there is a true aside or not, or if all asides are just sort of part of one, you know, big, broader conversation. 
And uh, Charlie, you said, I can't escape the feeling that there's more that you wanted from this interview, more that I should have done or said. But I think that's my own spiral that I have I will have to be okay with. Maybe this is a weird thing to say, but being a well-known academic seems like a weird position to be in. In a way, you're somewhere between a a therapist and a prophet. People want the answers to life, but they also want the answers to their own life. And of course, no person has either. I apologize for placing that kind of weight on you or on our conversation, lol. As in, (laughs) there is nothing to add, but because I worry that you might want me to provide or help you provide everything as if such a thing could exist in an interview, I'm worried there is more that's being left out. And they said, in a way, that's why there are no asides, because people are looking hard for something from anyone who's sustaining a thought, a pedagogy, an orientation towards resistance and attachment to life. This is why my epitaph is, they did what they could do at the time, which is a quote from the hundreds. So, yeah. Damn, um, I completely forgot about uh, this whole in- asp- uh, interaction from my own life. Um, and now <laughs> I... Thank you so much for bringing it back to me, Beatrice. Um, That's really beautiful that they said that. Uh, Also, I think another thing that is very sad for me, me personally, at least about them being dead. And since um, B brought up this interview is that when I when I did it. So in this interview, there are all these little asides, which um, were were from this Gchat conversation that we were having um, which was originally just meant to sort of tech troubleshoot um, the format of the interview and blah, 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 and then sort of became the real interview itself in sort of typical Lauren style. Um, and um, so I'm just going to read one of the little exchanges. Um, Lauren, by the way, I also use they. Um, and I was just I remember when they said this, I was literally like, what the actual fuck? Like, I did not know you were a transgender. Uh, <laughs> and um, then they said, the commune I lived on when I was in high school, Twin Oaks, had a neutral pronoun, co, and I used it for years and got my ass handed to me in grad school for being pretentious. And I was just like, wow, that's insane. Because this, this was literally like the 70s. Like, if if trans just barely has existed in sort of like national discourse, I don't know, in the last 10 years, like in the 70s, this was literally like 20 years after Christine Jorgensen, who was sort of like the first public American trans woman. Um, So Lauren was really like raw dogging it. Um, And (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it I remember when I when they said that on the one hand, it made so much sense of like so much of their work because it feels like one through line in a lot of their work is dissociation um sort of being feeling yourself like at one removed from reality and sort of being unable to sort of like plug yourself back in which of course is like as as people like Jules Gill Peterson and my friend Maxie Wallenhorst and many many other people have talked about is sort of like often um, a dysphoric response to reality. And I think one thing that feels so sad is that um, I talked to, I don't know, I think I think for, I think after I, I did this interview, I was sort of being like, oh, is this your like coming out interview? Like, are you gonna be trans now? And then it kind of just like never happened, at least on a, in a kind of public way. And I was like, oh, I guess you're just going to be a cis person. Sad. 
face emoji. Um, <laughs> and then after they died, I was talking to a friend, my friend Anna, who I met actually through Death Panel Reading Group. And they said that they were actually in Lauren's last class, probably at UChicago, and that they were using um, they, them pronouns there. And I mean, obviously the new book isn't out yet, but from what from the excerpts that that me and friends have sort of like trawled from the inter from the internet, like it is very much <laughs> about dissociation and maybe also about transness. And I feel like one thing that makes Lauren's death feel so sad is that I'm like, damn, you had so much to tell us about transness. Like you, like of all the generation of. Um, that sort of generation of not just like queer theory scholars, but also trans scholars like Jack Halberstam and like Paul Preciado, mm -hmm. like you were the least shitty one. I know. Like, <laughs> you were less shitty even than people who are out now, like Judith <laughs> Butler. Like you were like as an egg, you were doing better trans studies work than any of them. And I just feel like they had so much of their life to live like as a trans person um and so much to tell us about 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 the trans um and i don't know i mean i it made me really happy to hear that lauren had been using they them pronouns in their class and that they were just like fuck it i may be old but like i'm gonna be trans like i want to be happy like why not and i'm excited for the book and also um I'm just, it's just really sad that Laura never got to sort of experience life as a more out trans person. Um, it like, I think really hits for me and also for like other, you know, I was talking about this with Maxi about, you know, it yeah. really hits for other trans people because it's like, we've all experienced the pain of like not being able to, to come out um, and to die just as you were kind of preparing to do that in a more public way. It just feels like so cruel. Yeah. That was a good anecdote to bring in. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a that's probably the I'm best possible to way to make end sure it. my voice didn't crack when I hopped back on yeah. mic. <laughs> Sorry, I hope that wasn't Charlie, too bad on. No, 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 not at all. Thank you so much for coming on and and just sort of giving like, you know, your farewell and sort of death panel profile and intro to Lauren Berlant 101 from the per from the Berlant bro himself. I mean, one thing that's that's funny to me is, I mean, not I don't know if funny is the right word. It's both funny and deeply sad, um, like much of Lauren's work, which is that talking to people, a couple, so many people I talked to after Lauren died were just like, wow, it's so nuts because I was about to email them. I had an email drafted in my inbox. I, I wanted to talk to them about this. I wanted to talk to them about that. Um, so it's, you know, it's obviously I, my Twitter handle is Berlant bro, but like so many, there are so many other Berlant bros out there. Um, <laughs> and I love all of you. Um, I think that's the perfect place to, to leave it. I really appreciate it. And, um, if uh, people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter at Berlant Bro, or they can come hang out and read in group with us every Sunday. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, which come out every Monday. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, tweet about your favorite episode, tell your friends, you know, engage in social reproduction. It's all greatly appreciated. Yeah. 
And um, we'll catch you later in the week. All right. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
July 4th, the American holiday, a celebration of freedom. And this year, there's more to celebrate. The freedom to hug a grandchild, to see a baseball game in person, to come back together again. America, leading the world out of a global pandemic with honesty and compassion. America's journey continues through fireworks and parades.